And you're welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast as we look ahead to the final round of the Six Nations Championship with the asterisks of France and Scotland still to be played. Ireland on the back of a win last weekend. Much needed win, you'd have to say. I'm delighted to say that uh, Donald Lennon, Wes Liddy and Johnny Holland is back with us again. Johnny, good to have you on board. Thanks, you. It's good to be back. Yeah, so we've uh, lots to get through. Um, look, uh, f- first of all, Donald, just your, your assessment of the game against Scotland. And uh, maybe uh, overall sense seems to be it wasn't the prettiest game, but Ireland got the job done. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Look, I think it was a very frustrating game. I mean, I think um, I, I thought the opening 20 minutes of the match, I thought they controlled the game brilliantly, played in the right areas of the field, brought a very good mix to their game. Uh, pressurised Scotland and, you know, a Scottish team that had started the championship so well in, in terms of uh, beating England away. Um, they were in control of the game against Wales and kind of lost their way after Fagerson got sent off. So this was a, a Scottish team with a point to prove they'd been left kind of waiting four weeks to address the the, the scab of the, the Welsh game, if you like. And, um, you know, any semblance of grandeur that they had, I thought Ireland took away in that opening 20 minutes. Um, but then you look as the game progressed. When you go into a 24-10 lead at this level of rugby, you shouldn't be hanging on at the end and waiting for a, you know, a, 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 an outstanding piece of, of individual. You know, I mean, Johnny Sexton, clutch kick, not an easy kick, very difficult conditions. You're about three metres in from the, from the, the left-hand touchline. So uh, the concern really for me is how Ireland found themselves in that position given that they were so dominant, um, particularly in the first and the third quarter. I guess, Wes, you know, after Saturday's game, you know, an absolute classic between France and England, it was a bit like going to the Louvre to see the, Louvre to see the Mona Lisa and then be handed a, a finger painting by your six-year-old. Like, I mean, it just it, the contrast between the two games was just chalk and cheese. Yeah, it certainly puts into context, I suppose, some of the praise. Scotland have been coming in for, um, I mean... You know, Eddie O'Sullivan came in for a lot of criticism when he called them deluded there. It was referenced a few times in the build-up to the game. But, I mean, you know, to kind of claw your way back from 14 points down and then give up three points from a a turnover, from a a box kick that gets charged down. I mean, it's just not something you see good teams do, really. Um, So, I mean, there was a phase there after Ireland took the lead in the 78th minute. Uh, where I counted between 78 minutes on the clock and 78.30 on the clock. Ireland desperately needing to hold on to the ball and maintain their lead. Scotland desperately needing a score to get back into the game. And the ball was kicked away five times in 30 seconds between the two teams, which was um, pretty hard to understand, really, and, and somewhat symptomatic of, of a lot of parts of the game, I think. Yeah, it was. And Johnny, look, as a spectacle, it wasn't the greatest. I'm sure Andy Farrell won't care. I mean, the important thing, I guess, when the championship is over is that, you know, his CV will read that he has two wins so far and England still to come. But nevertheless, it does kind of throw up a, a few issues that have kind of been hounding him, I suppose, over the last while. And namely, again, you know, when Ireland have the ball, you know, we don't seem to be very clinical. We don't seem to have a, a kind of a, a clear plan of what to do with it. And it's the attack side of Ireland's game that still leaves a lot of questions unanswered, I think. Yeah, I suppose it does. Like, and um, you know, I think it is being that clinical. You know, I, I kind of referenced that Ireland need to build a lead to start playing a bit of rugby. Like, and they did build that lead, but all of a sudden they gave up the lead with a, a poor miss tackle and maybe just kind of soaking tackles as well. So, like, you know, I think in the first half, not to keep coming back to the past, but I think 
like under different management, they wouldn't have been allowed to give up that lead and they would have actually had to, you know, build one or two more scores in that first half that I think they let, kind of let, let slip. But, you know, I think Andy Farrell's way is to kind of empower the players and that's what we're being told at least. And that's what I would imagine with my limited kind of um, dealings with the man. But I think like that is what they're being kind of asked to express. And I think that's part of the, that's part of getting used to that, you know, that you do kind of give up a few scores and it's not up to the coach to kind of give you the teacher's slap across the wrist. Like it's, it's up to the players to actually kind of grab a hold of that. And I think that they are learning that, but like, you know, you said that the attack probably suffered a small bit. And I, I, I got a, um, a fellow replying to my Twitter during the week and he was asking, who can we put into 13 to be a better playmaker? And I was kind of thinking, was that Gary Ringrose we, we got playing at 13? Like one of the, one of the yeah. most exciting 13s that we have, you know? And I, I was kind of going, Jesus, you can't replace the person. Maybe you just replace the tactics that we're using. And you can kind of see that Gary Ringrose is running short lines and he is kind of maybe narrowing the pitch a small bit, whereas we know he's got the ability to bounce out and we know he's got the ability to, to distribute. So maybe it's not the personnel and maybe it's just still getting used to the way they're being asked to play. His eyes have probably been in quite a bit in the past and just getting someone like that, getting his eyes up. And I know with him being out, out this weekend, we probably had a, a good conversation on Robbie Henshaw the last time I was on this podcast or one of the last times I was on it. And we were talking about how important he was. And I think that's come to fruition now. Do you put him into 13? Because he can distribute. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's so much the personnel. It's just getting used to that way that they're playing still. And I do think there's a bit, a little bit within them that they will bring. But I do think they need to bring it out as well. Because, you know, going 24-10 and then just soaking up everything after that with no attack after that is brutal enough, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't I think, that, you know, after the game, I, I remember being really just disappointed, even despite the fact that we got the win. Primarily because I was looking around, obviously, in the context of what England and France did the previous day. And then you look at the likes of New Zealand and, and say, even South Africa and the, the top sides in the world at the moment. And like performances like that will get us nowhere near being able to, to, to even take on and be able to compete with the top sides. I think one of the stats after the game was that we had uh, six line breaks, or sorry, uh, yes, three line breaks in the entire match and six defenders beaten, which I guess sums up how stale the attack has become. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I also think, look, when you look at where we were uh, three years ago to where we are now, we had the capacity to go down to South Africa, beat South Africa down there in 2016. We went to Australia. We won a Test Series 2-1. Uh, we beat New Zealand uh, in Dublin. Uh, whereas now, I think, you know, we, we're not in a position to compete uh, on a regular basis with the top three or four teams in the world. And that's a concern. You take Johnny's point in relation to Gary Ringrose. Gary Ringrose, we all know, is an outstanding player. But mm. as of now, I mean, I put myself in, in Warren Gatlin. The cameras, they love going to Gatty in the, in the matches because there's nobody else, obviously. He's the only supporter <laughs> in the whole place. So he's out every five minutes. But, uh, I mean, I actually felt sorry for Gary Ringrose. In my view, like going back to four weeks ago, he was a shoe-in to go on a Lions squad, you know, hoping there is a Lions tour and, you know, a debate for another day. But... As of now, I mean, he, he looked very tentative, very poor the last day. As Johnny said, kept cut, cutting back inside. His ability to beat people on the outside, the, the quality of his game. Um, he kicked away possession twice. One of them led to the, that calamitous try from uh, Finn Russell. This isn't the Gary Ringrose that we know. And the way he's been asked to play is actually playing him out of contention for a Lions squad. And I think that's reflective of where we are. We should be playing to our strengths. Um, like James Lowe will, will come up for debate, I'm quite sure. We all know the one thing he has is ability to beat people in broken play. What's the point in picking him if he doesn't get those opportunities? 
Uh, his defence uh, has unfortunately been proved not to be up to international standard. I think he's missed seven of 17 tackles that have come his way. And therefore, uh, that should cost him his place on the team. But if you pick a guy to do a job for you, then give him the tools to be able to implement what he does best. Um, and the other thing I think that really concerned me, all the top teams, you go, if you, you have your, your New Zealand, South Africa, and you're 14 points ahead, <clears throat> sorry, of the opposition, well, then you go for the juggler and you put more and you keep on pressing and attacking because they're the guys who are stressed. Their defence is coming under pressure. So why do you take the, the pressure off them? And finally, in that final quarter, when Scotland actually outscored us, they had um, Stuart Hogg was a makeshift 10. Finn Russell had gone off. They had uh, Nick Haining, who's a small number eight, had to go into the second row. That's it. Scotland had bought, last bought Johnny Gray and Scott Cummings. And they had Scott Steele, who's number two or three scrum half, I think, for Harlequins. He was playing in the back row. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't even know where, like getting into the scrum. He was almost like uh, some fellow who won a competition to be part of the team for the day. Yeah. Um, and yes, they outplayed us in that final quarter. Uh, that, for me, is hugely concerning. I mean, flip the mindset going into England. If And, uh, you know, could easily have happened. If Johnny Sexton's kick just shaded, the wind seemed to take it in at the last second inside the, the left-hand upright. If it had gone on the other side of the post, you were looking at a draw. I mean, how flat and how disappointed would you feel after that? Absolutely. And look, a couple of key issues there. Whereas, look, the James Lowe issue is, is a big one. Um, I, I think, you know, on his watch, he's been responsible for four tries just from missed tackles and, and poor reads. Um, him alone. So I, I, can we just say now that the James Lowe experiment or whatever it is, is over and that, you know... He shouldn't be picked again. Is it is it too simple to say that? I think it's too simple to say he shouldn't be picked again. He possibly shouldn't be picked this weekend. Um, but that's not to say fellas can't improve in the medium to long term. He obviously brings a lot of uh, attacking qualities. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we, I think we had some defensive doubts prior to debut. But I mean, it just does go to point out the the step up that's always referenced about international rugby. But I mean. Look, they won the game, and the positive for me would be that I think there's a lot more in the team, and I think individual performances, strangely, you know, I know we made the point about Gary Ringrose, but but there have been some very strong individual performances, and that that shows that there is talent there that hasn't been quite harnessed collectively. There's um there's a there's a phrase doing the rounds at these uh, Neffet briefings that we've all become experts in watching every week that kind of came to mind the other night when I was thinking about this, but an abundance of caution is a phrase that they like to use. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to veer into the Eamon Dunphy territory now and have the, the Corcon lads there rolling their eyes at me. But like, I Go on, go on, do it, do it, it do it. You know, sports, <laughs> international sports are representative of, of a society or a culture that they, they represent by their very nature. And, like, you know, if ever a sport was representative of a kind of official middle-class Ireland, it's rugby. And I, I think we can see the conservative nature of that, like across every aspect of Irish society and rugby seems to very much uh, conform to that. And it, it's, there's just a massive aversion to, to risk of any kind. And risk is associated with this flamboyant attack in rugby. But I, I think it's, 
it's become very reductionist with this team and that, you know, it's 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 not safe to pick and jam anymore because of the new uh, breakdown rules. You know, carrying the ball, it, it, you see the amount of turnovers that are happening in the game when people lose their support. So, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's, it's like kicking the ball away is now equated as being low risk, um, which I, I still don't understand really, but it, it, it's it's kind of... It's like there's an attempt to kind of not make mistake your way to glory, which I don't think any team in the history of sport has reached ultimate glory by setting out to not make mistakes. Um, mm. At some point, I you think have Wales, to, sorry, to go Wales, for it a little you, bit. You were brought up, you see, on the on the champagne rugby that the cookies in your monsters played in <laughs> the 90s and the 2000s. The wide, wide game in Tom Clifford Park, and you've been spoiled by that. Well, I saw Gary Owen playing that way anyway, at least, to be fair. <laughs> it's the only glimpse we got of it. I mean, look, Johnny, like, where's his point? And actually, Simon Hick wrote a very good piece for the currency as well. And uh, uh, the headline on the article was, you know, the riskiest thing to do in top-level sport is to not take risks. And, you know, it does seem like, well, whether it's a a hangover from the Joe Schmidt era, but Joe Schmidt's mantra was literally follow the blueprint, follow the plan, and don't take risks. It does seem like Andy Farrell has just kind of carried that over, not to the same degree. And and I think the players are being given more license to express themselves, but it's very hard to to make the case that, that Ireland are moving upwards, if not moving across under Andy Farrell. Yeah, like you look at the, the last two minutes that uh, Wes has referenced and they kicked the ball away. Like, you know, I think there's two sides to it that you have Stuart Hogg on the pitch who can kick from 50 and anywhere inside that half. So, like, when you've got the risk of carrying the ball into contact and Roma Pot, I wouldn't trust him with the whistle or not, he, uh, he, he's going to blow that, like, and, and all of a sudden it's this kind of thing, Hogg to kick, to kick it to, to draw and, and the flat thing that Donald's talking about. So, I kind of, I'd have some sympathy, but Wes is right, like, you're... The, the least amount of risk is kicking the ball to the Scottish backfield where, where Stuart Hogg could well be and he's one of the most exciting players in the backfield in rugby like you know so it's funny when we're talking about that being the least, least risky thing to do but like you know you, you speak about France and the way they play the only reason they stayed in that game with England is because of the way they play and they throw a pass and you see that um, the set piece is doing the rounds where they threw it over the top and there's a bit of a loop and then uh, Henry Slade bit in at 13 because Vakatau was so good and, and they scored an unbelievable try in the corner Ireland don't have that ability. So if we're going to give England that amount of ball, France were woeful in, in terms of what they did with the ball. The way they kicked that ball away, Ireland will not get away with that. And, you know, I, I said that Ireland won't kick the ball that loosely, but they will kick the ball. And we've seen that time and time again where you kick the ball back to England, the wave of pressure comes back. They're way too strong. Uh, maybe not in the way they're playing at the moment. Geez, the way they played last week, you're not going to survive with that. So, so like, even an English side, that's not really humming. Like, we're, we're not going to be able to take that amount of pressure into our own half and, and not give away scores. So, like, yeah, you, you'd hope that, you know, they can find softer channels on the outside to get themselves up the pitch, to allow themselves to play a bit more rugby. But, like, if you look at the start of the Scotland game, we went up by a try because Johnny, Johnny Sexton kicked the ball into their 22 and, and they targeted short hog. Robbie Henshaw has obviously been um, lauded for his, his kick chase and how he got the ball back. Now, I thought the second kick, uh, the crossfield kick, was, was quality play to actually get out of a ruck, look up and kick at the other side. Now, the execution wasn't what Johnny Sexton is normally about, but between Keaters and, and Robbie Henshaw, they finished that. But that's that's not attacking rugby. Do you know what I mean? That's that's getting the ball back from a kick and, and then, yeah, off the cuff, kicking a, a ball across field. And that, that was class. But, like, you know, you do need to throw a pass and maybe that run kick option. England do a lot of run kick where they, they throw a pass first and then they kick it into these 
um, these corners. Like um, I know the the Crusaders would have used that a lot, and Tyler Blindell brought that into Munster, where you kick it into these coffin corners or whatever they're calling it, and it's very hard to exit. I think in 2018 was it 17 or 18 when when England really upset. Maybe it was 18 when England really upset Ireland. They took that blueprint, and Elliot Daly was knocking them in there all the time. So like, you know, at least if we can throw the pass and then put a, a more probing kick in there. That's more attacking rugby than just putting the ball in the air. But I look, I don't, I know the way it is. Like, it, it is a risky business. It's international rugby. Like, you can't just play in your own half. But I do think they need to get out of their half with a bit more um, creativeness and, and putting the, mm. other, the other team under a bit more pressure, you know? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> you and I have walked away from a lot of uh, under 20s games over the last three or four years. Um, and just remarking about how happy we were to see the head coaches in the position. Um, whoever was in charge, just allow the players, I guess, a freedom to express themselves, a license to play and to try things. And it, it was so novel, really, because we just weren't seeing it at a senior level, you know, from, from an Irish team. And, I, I, you know, I, obviously under 20s and, and senior international, there is a, there's a huge gulf between the two in terms of standards and step up. But I, I've always just wished that Ireland could be a little bit more uh, creative or exciting or, you know, just... <laughs> open to different styles of play because I, that's what I'm seeing from France now. That's what I'm seeing from France now, the way they play. It's exciting, it's creative, it's fast, it's a high tempo. And I just wish that the Irish players, because we know they have the ability, would be able to take them to senior level and just and try something. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, I think you go back to the 20s. Uh, one of the issues you have is obviously you're, you're bringing players together who don't know each other. It's a new group every year. So you have a massive turnover in personnel that you don't have, say, at international level. So like take, for example, Noel McNamara, who, you know, we've seen in operation uh, for the past number of years. I know he stepped down, I think, this year. Now he's, he's Leinster Academy manager. But you're right. I mean, he encouraged the players to play. Um, certainly, you know, the, the, the Irish 20 sides that we've seen in the last two years, the most impressive thing is they had the skill set to play that offloading game, to attack space when it was there. You know, forwards like Thomas O'Hearn and, and, and these guys looking comfortable with the ball in hand. So it's wrong to say that Irish players don't have the skill set. This then becomes a question of whether they're encouraged uh, to show them or not. Um, I mean, the bottom line is from an attacking perspective, uh, taking the Italy game out of it, or, 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 or tries, or four tries in the other games, uh, you had a line-out overthrow against Wales that uh, Robbie Henshaw picked up. Clyde Byrne managed to score uh, against France. It was our line-out that we messed up. And, and fairness, Ronan Keller picked up a loose ball, scored at the corner. Uh, and the, the two tries that we're talking about on Saturday, Johnny Sexton's kick, a collision in the air, and then Clyde Byrne picking again from five metres. So, like, mm. the biggest issue I think Ireland have is they're not... Um, you know, they don't, they're not posing a threat for teams outside of their 22. Um, and you can't, uh, teams seem to have become very familiar with the way Ireland play. The other thing I think is just the lack of variety. I mean, you look at the French game, and Johnny, you're the coach, so you might comment on this, but from an attacking perspective, I'd say 80% of all French lineouts was ball off the middle of the tail or a throwover. I mean, the, 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 obviously the, the power play, the brilliant try that they got in the corner. Uh, you know, the line-out throw over the top to Fico, which they did against Ireland as well. Like, why don't we have the capacity to do that? To be fair to Joe Schmidt, like, we uh, were brilliant in terms of, uh, we were inventive in terms of creating opportunities like that offset play. Um, but, but we seem to have lacked that as well. 
Uh, we just don't seem to have the variety. Nine times out of ten in the opposition half, we'll take it, we'll maul it, we'll be stodgy, there'll be a box kick go up, there'll be a chase. And we're looking for the opposition either to concede possession in their 22 or to give away a penalty at a breakdown because we've gone through seven or eight phases. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, just teams work you out. And, and I just don't think we show enough variety in the way that we're attacking. Let's call a spade a spade, Wes. Mike Cat is an issue, isn't he? Like, he has to be. He's the attack coach. And our attack is, is stale, stagnant. As Donald outlined, the tries that we scored have been just predictable and, and nothing to write home about. So, Mike Cat is an issue, is he not? Yeah, he, he, he would certainly appear to be. Now, there is this school of thought that attack is the thing that takes the longest to bet in. But, I mean, not to digress from that completely, but, like, I mean... Everyone's talking about the England-France game as well. And I think it's telling that there's been so much comment on it because I think that's probably because there's been so much stodge that's been played in all competitions over the last few months. Like, mm. I, I actually think the game is at, is in a bit of trouble um, and, you know, or is certainly on the way to being in a bit of trouble as a spectacle. Like, And we, we referenced this last week, Birch referenced it with regards... Um, you know, the approach, the kind of close quarters, pick and jam approach the teams are bringing to bear when they're in the opposition's red zone. But like to me, the new breakdown laws are, are a massive issue now. Um, I don't know if you can think back to the penalty that Ben Earl won, um, which was overturned in the last minute of the, the England-France game the weekend. If you just forget about it being overturned for a minute and you, you, you think of that, when someone gets into that legal jackal position now, I mean... They obviously wanted to avoid this situation where someone is in that poach position and people are firing themselves like missiles at him from 20 yards away for, from a safety point of view, which makes sense and the optics of it are terrible. Now, on, on the flip side of that, the, the stats on injuries around the breakdown are actually surprisingly low, particularly head injuries compared to other facets of play. But the point I'm making is someone gets into that position now, that poach position, and really... The penalty is blown as soon as they're in the position. Um, now, you can say the person that's been tackled isn't releasing. It should be a penalty. But, like, there's no second or two's leeway given to see are they attempting to steal the ball. There's no, there's no contest for possession. It's just a race to present a picture to the referee that you're in a poach position. And the contest for the ball is fundamental to what separates rugby union from rugby league. Like you're getting a you're getting a legitimate jackal attempt every five or six phases, and where where this ultimately leads is you're getting like Ben Earl wins, wins that penalty. By the time everyone gets set, the ball's kicked to touch. You go down and have your line out. The play is stopped for ninety seconds to two minutes. So what you're what you're working towards here is a situation where you're getting five or six phases of rugby for two minutes of stoppage. Like that's not an equation that works as a spectacle at all. And equally, that's the exact reason why teams aren't taking chances ball in hand, because the risk of being penalized at the breakdown is becoming far too high. And like I'm all for the safety concerns, but I mean at some point the game stops being the game. It becomes something different. Like like you you're getting to a point with rugby now where you're almost like getting to where Gaelic football has been, where the game is in this like perpetual existential crisis because there's too much rule tweaking and it starts to make a bit of a mockery of the whole sport 
at a certain stage. I mean, you saw it in the same phase of playing that England game. Ellis Gaines got a penalty in the scrum, which ultimately led to Atoja's try. He clearly drops onto one knee, and then he gets the nudge from his knee. And and Alan Quinlan said it in commentary. You're kind of going, this this has become a complete lottery as to who drops first. Does an elbow hit the ground? Does a knee hit the ground? Mm-hmm. Anyone gets any nudge in the scrum, and it's a penalty auto- automatically. Whereas there's no rule against pushing a scrum 20 yards as long as it's safe. And you're kind of looking at things like a scrum, a breakdown, and you're going, these are like the pillars of the sport, mm-hmm. and they're now radically different to what they were a number of years ago. And, and like I, I texted Donald the other night asking him this and, and like I'm open to correction or, or, or other people's opinion here, but as in terms of how it's refereed, in terms of a spectacle, in terms of safety, and in terms of being conducive to attacking rugby, after 20 plus years of professionalism, is the breakdown any better now than it was in the amateur game? And if it's not, that, well that, that's, there's something seriously wrong there. Mm. Well, I think what, what you're saying, Wes, is, is sort of the law of unintended consequences as such. Absolutely. In that you, you have uh, the, the law. It, it, sometimes it, it is the change in the law. It's a change in the interpretation of existing law, which is what's happening at the moment at the breakdown. Uh, you, you, you swing from one extreme to the other where, you know, you have things like a crocodile roll and that horrible injury that we saw for, for uh, Jack Willis. Uh, we saw... Um, breakdown injuries to one of the young Irish players at the uh, under-20 World Cup, fellas coming in on the side, tackling along uh, on the knees. So therefore you tweak the law in relation to that, but you're 100% right in terms, if you take the, the element of contest away, what you need actually, and you go back, you were asking me about the amateur days and the breakdown and, and uh, you know, I was thinking about it, I didn't come back to you, um, but the bottom line is you, you need to have a contest that engages more people, more yeah. forwards. As of now, you, uh, opposition teams are only sending one, if not two players, into the rock on the basis that they know that the opposition are going to retain possession. You've no chance of getting it back. So as a consequence of that, you have six or seven of the opposition forwards standing up on their feet, creating this defensive line across the field. Um, so you have to find a way to make more competition, to entice more players to get into the breakdown. That in itself will create the space that you're looking for off quick ball. I mean, even the opportunities of recycling the ball quickly, and we've seen Ireland now, their breakdown has improved to the degree whereby um, you know, 60% of their ball has been recycled in three seconds or under. Now that sounds brilliant, but maybe it's been recycled quicker because nobody's contesting for it. And all the other forwards are standing out in the middle of the field. So you're defeating the purpose. So all you're doing is the scrum half of the 10 are getting more ball with more fellas coming down on top of them. And then that, that cuts their options. So they're forced to kick it away. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I do agree with you in terms of, um, I think the breakdown, the, 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 the weighting of it has gone the other way now. You should, before you had kind of two or three seconds after the tackle to be able to place the ball. And that gave, then that enticed your support players to come in to sort of clean out the opposition and present the ball better for you. Whereas no, uh, I, I think nobody is contesting to any degree. Of course, I, I, I could go back years ago when you had proper rocking. I mean, it isn't that long ago that you trained so much on a Sunday morning where you had fellas under nets where you bound with, with players from your own side to hit rocks 
to go in at a certain body height to drive the opposition off the ball. And if there were opposition players lying there, you rocked them out of it. And, you know, nobody ever got badly injured from a rock. You got a fucking couple of stitches, maybe, if it was in the wrong place. Olivier Room, I might argue that one with you. Yeah, well, look, you are, you, there's exceptions to every rule. But the <laughs> yeah. bottom line is it was self-policing. You know, Scotland were never the biggest. But Telford, like, they were rock crazy. And you knew when you played Scotland. I mean, New Zealand was easy in comparison to, from a rock point of view than Scotland. Scotland had eight fellas. It was like being spit out the back of a combine harvester or something. <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, like, like it's gone the other extreme now. But... Um, but look, mm. I, I agree with your point. The bottom line is, by virtue of the fact that um, people aren't contesting or, you know, everything is with the poacher now, it's just encouraging forwards not to get in there, stay on their feet. You have to find a way to engage more forwards where they're being sucked into the breakdown and allow, uh, I mean, you know, give, create more space on the field. That's mm. what we're and this talking is, about. Exactly. This is exactly what we're talking about. And this is what World Rugby are looking at, Johnny. And, uh, you know, they're trialing things left, right and centre. They're trying the 50-22 rule where if you kick the ball inside your own half and it bounces inside the option 22, it gives the team who kicked the line out. They're trying different things with the end point of hoping to create more space. And if you have more space, hopefully you have more attacking rugby and more tries and so on. But we see it does seem to be a bit of a rabbit hole here and, and nobody really knows how to fix the problem. Yeah, it's tough. And like the two lads are far older than me, so they've lost me there for a bit. Far older, pieces, far but... older, yeah. <laughs> but, I'm not getting but grouped you... in with Easy. But if you look Easy at who's... Though, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> if you look if you look at who's trialing it, it's the southern hemisphere is trialing it. And yeah. we'll we'll take it on if it works. You know, like we're still not leading the charge in, in trialing different different law variations. So like again, they're just they're ahead of us and they'll they'll react to those laws faster than us if they do come in and then they'll get the nudge on that as well. So like, yeah, we're not very proactive on it, but like, you know, I actually, I would have, I would have quite enjoyed the 50-22 rule. I think Rob Carney got one last weekend or the weekend before. I think that's a nice way of taking the emphasis away from contacts, putting more people in the backfield, reducing the front line and actually maybe being able to speed the ball up a bit. You might only lose one or two guys from the front field and you'll still get seven forwards on their feet, but you know, you might get them in wider positions and having to defend Gary Ringrose who's looking on the outside or Robbie Henshaw who does what he does against France and go on the outside and go back around the rock or whatever it is and it just creates a little bit more space so I don't know something does have to be done but don't like on, on your point as well you know referees are only allowing the first guy to poach so it's only one guy that's going to go in there and a tackler maybe that, that's getting back up and we see Ireland putting the emphasis on the tackler not being on the ground at all you see Keith Earls is very good at it he's back up and he's into that rock so maybe actually it's only the tackler in the rock or the tackler can reset and another guy goes in so now you've only one guy in the rock Max nearly a lot of the time. It's probably Tyburn most of the time. In fairness, so he's been unbelievable at it. But yeah, you do like you do have to find a way to speed the game up. The game is actually probably had has been sped up to some degree because the rocks are very fast. We've got a full a full line in front of them, so it's a difficult one. And it is a rabbit hole. I don't know if we're going to have the answer on on a single podcast, but something has to be done to create the, the space or time on the ball to to be able to attack a little bit better. Okay, and sorry, Johnny. Has the sorry you has the the fifty twenty two. I mean, I don't see as much of this the uh, the the Australian rugby at the moment, is it making an impact down there or is it, you know, is it, um, uh, I presume it's a, a work in progress? Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of it myself, to be honest. You see, just see the clips, but like, I think even with the, the one being held up over the line, it's a, 20, it's a goal line dropout. You know, again, it's less contact, less kind of messing around the, around the goal line and it has to be doing something. Now you can argue as well that it's just not the game. Like that's a rugby league thing and 
But as you go back to your point, the game is going to go further away from what it was before. So, like, it is a little bit different. And sometimes you look at that game going, it is a different game to what we've got up here. Maybe surfaces are different. The intent to throw the ball is a bit different. But, again, I think with Rob Kearney, because he's played so much rugby here and, um, you know, he, he's obviously played to a level and he's gone down there and he's talking about the differences that they're allowed to do things. Now, it's club level there. You know, he's not playing international level there. So, it can't be a, a direct comparison. Mm. But... I think if you do some of those things in the uh, in the provincial game up here, like you're you're not going to get away with it. And I can I can understand it to a degree, especially from a coaching point of view. You can definitely understand it to a degree. But you, I, I'm hoping that Ireland are bringing in this kind of decision making, the ability to offload the ball, and that the players are trying to get used to it, and that we are seeing a change. Like you see, James Lowe gave one to the Johnny Sexton, didn't he? CJ Stander was offloading a ball in contact. So I think we are seeing a change. Maybe they're just slow to to kind of bring it in and. You know, I, I give them the benefit of the doubt that I hope that things are changing as well. But, but I, I, Wes, I think you said that the attack is, a, is the hardest thing to change or the thing that takes the longest. And I've seen that definitely as a, from a playing perspective and from a coaching perspective. It does take a lot more time to embed that and get the players to have the confidence to do that. But, you know, as a player standing on a pitch, you love if the team are just going to maul all day. Now you're kind of saying to your forwards, you know, step up or don't bother. You can step up or we go home with a loss. You know, you step up, we win the game. Because if, if you're standing there as a 10 and at best you're getting the 12 in your channel, you stand your seven beside you and hope for the best, you know, but you're not making decisions. It's easy to throw yourself under a tackle whether you're strong enough for that or not. It's not easy to have to read that player coming at you and something out the back and maybe knowing that they have the ability to go to the width. So, like, it, it's the mental, the decision-making that makes the game, not just crashing in defenders and getting over the game line and hoping that the ball becomes quick. You know, standing in the... 10, 12 or 13 channel when teams are picking and going you're just kind of going we just need to front up here and get under them and, and hopefully drive them back whereas if you're doing the the French thing or even the Leinster thing where the ball can just move, move all of a sudden their heads are going to be on a swivel all day the defenders can't just jam in all day they have to be looking up and that creates a bit more space for when they do that kind of pick and jam or whatever it is so um, yeah, it's interesting the, the game is definitely changing but hopefully it's not going away too far from, from what we want like Wes has said Okay, well, something we'll come back to. Um, just a couple other things I want to talk about. Don, were you surprised by CJ Sanders' news? Uh, I was. Um, didn't see it coming. Uh, there had been talk look, that, uh, obviously, we know he's in negotiations with the RFU. The contract was up at the end of June. There was a suggestion earlier in the year that he was uh, going to the Blue Bulls. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe we shouldn't discount that either. But the bottom line is... Um, I think you have to factor in lockdown here, Hugh, and we all know what lockdown has been like. Uh, I just read Ellis Genge talking about really how difficult and boring it has been in the England camp in the Six Nations, um, uh, how they can't wait to get out of it, despite the fact they all get on well and blah, blah, blah. But like you're, you're two months in there. Um, you look, it's well known that CJ's wife and his daughter have been back in South Africa during the, the, the lockdowns. CJ was back himself there for... Uh, a period of time. Um, and he is, uh, like I, I was in South Africa in 2018 when Munster played uh, Southern Kings in George, which was his hometown. And uh, geez, I mean, Munster had more South African fans and they had obviously people traveling, uh, which was, you know, it was interesting to see just how revered he was in the area, how, what he had done in, with his career in, in, in Munster in Ireland had resonated down there. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he was always going to go back and, and you know, there's family farm, family business there. Um, I, I 
get the impression maybe that the first offer he got from the IRFU kind of left him very cold. Uh, like CJ isn't a complicated guy. He's a very straight, honest fella. Um, look, the one thing, and you know my views on the overseas, the three-year residency, I was never in favour of it. I hated it, actually. Um, I'm delighted to when it was extended to five years. But that said, I respected 100% what the honesty and the, the commitment that CJ Standard gave to Munster in Ireland. That could never, ever be questioned. Um, and I think he felt that maybe, you know, that needed to be rewarded in terms of the contract he was offered. So it was easy for him to turn down. And we understand, look, everybody's contracts have been dropped because of COVID, because of the financial scenario. Um, but maybe, look, that was just another factor. But I do think um, COVID has accelerated a process that was going to be inevitable anyway. He was always going back to South Africa, having his wife and his young daughter out there for the past number of months hasn't been a help. When all the other players, Ireland have released players to go back out of camp uh, with their families for a couple of days in between the matches. CJ chose to stay in the hotel because he'd no one to go home to. Um, so, I mean, that accelerates all those things. Um, look, he's been a magnificent um, performer for both Munster and Ireland. Um, so, I suppose to answer your question, I was shocked because I hadn't been expecting it. But... I could fully understand the logic and the, the thought process behind that decision. But mm. would I be surprised if in six months or nine months, uh, you know, chasing the ostriches around the farm, I'd say he might get fed up with that after a while and you <laughs> might see him back playing in, a, in the Pro 16 for one of the um, uh, the, the South African franchises. What did, you, what did you make of it, Wes? I was shocked. Uh, when I saw it first, because it was so out of the blue, um, I think you're starting to see the mood change from kind of shock and, you know, tributes to a couple of people maybe questioning the whole project player notion again. You know, I mean, someone did come over here for nine years or whatever it was, make a good living and kind of seem to leave at the height of their powers. I think in this case, with CJ, like, in fairness to him, in terms of physical commitment and, and putting his body forward for punishment, like, I, I think, I just don't think you could possibly question his, his commitment. Um, I think when he, from when he first kind of broke into the Munster team, the Irish team, maybe from around 2014, 15, till about 2017 or 18, he, he was absolutely world-class. Um, I think he probably... His form dipped, his explosiveness probably dipped a slight bit in the last year or two in that I suppose, I think Joe with Ireland played such an attritional game and CJ was, he was almost too honest for his own good sometimes in terms of he was always willing to present to kind of turn, attempt to turn slow ball into fast, turn up for kind of tankless carries, um, which I'm sure endeared him massively to his teammates, but probably wasn't as eye-catching as as the way he had been playing a couple of years uh, previous to that. Um, and I think it probably sums up the difficulties Munster will face going forward in terms of like for competing with Leinster and in terms of winning trophies and that, you know, you've seen John Hodden and Gavin Coombs emerge this year. And just as you get to, you lose one. And I think with the resources Munster have at their disposal, um, they're always going to be waiting for this perfect storm of, young players coming through, the right overseas signings, everybody being fit um, to kind of come together. 
you know, they might produce 10 good players over a five-year period and Leinster will probably produce 25. Um, and it kind of just highlighted that that difficulty they'll have for me as well. But, um, no, look, strange to see someone go at 30, but, but he's been a top player for both, for sure. Yeah, and I guess disappointing for Munster fans, Johnny, that, that CJ will be leaving at the end of the season. But on the more positive side of things, Joey Carberry started for the first time last weekend. Um, what did you make of his performance? Jeez, and what are you hoping to see from him coming back into the fray for Munster? Jesus, like it happened all of a sudden. I know there was kind of whispers behind the scenes that it was happening, but you know, you're nearly kind of going as a Munster fan. Um, you're kind of just hoping it was true. And yeah, he's lived up to it. I mean, Jesus, he's he's an exciting player. And I think, you know, if it was three months earlier, if he had a, a couple of games under his belt, I think the Six Nations campaign could have looked slightly different. And at least having the competition there, like you you say these things, you don't know how he's going to present an Irish camp and you don't know how he's going to present over the next six to 12 months, but he's living up to all expectation at the moment. Like that try at the weekend, handing off Shane Daly to get there and giving the ball back to him. I think he's been, um, I think he's been rock solid since he's come back. He, he looks like he's enjoying himself and just taking it in his stride. I think the, the fear was that he'd just come back and try to impress and, you know, an ankle wouldn't, wouldn't help him or he'd, he'd pick up an injury of some sort and face more frustration. But, it looks like he's just doing his bit. He's stroking the ball over the bar. Uh, he doesn't look like there's much effort going into it. Obviously, there's a lot of effort in behind the scenes, but like he's just stroking that. And uh, I think I, I've said it that, you know, it's the first time since I retired that I've got very, very excited about a player and turned back into a fanboy because he's just so exciting to watch. And I think it's it's going to be great for the supporters to be able to follow a player with that kind of uh, excitement and um, maybe mask the CJ thing, but, you know, CJ one is I think we've all been in a bit of mourning in the last in the last day or two. Um I went through all the stages of disappointment, anger and, and frustration and understanding, I think. Um but yeah. you know the the excitement around some of the players at Munster with with Joey obviously driving that and um you look at Gavin Coombs, Jack O'Sullivan, Jack O'Donoghue, uh, John Hodnett when he can get back on his feet. There's a lot of Irish and West Cork um coming through that that Munster that monster kind of background, it is exciting. Like it's not going to be easy to, it's not going to be easy to replace CJ, but it, you definitely have a couple of players there that have the ability to step into Irish camp at least. Um, but yeah, what, what Joey will bring to the guys that are coming in, like a bit of, like like we spoke about an attack. You don't know what Joey's going to do. The way he was running, even when he made that line break, his hips were going everywhere, his feet were going the the other way, and the defenders didn't know what to do, so they jam in, and then Shane Daly allows allows him to go through a gap and and finish a try that I think he's deserved in the last couple of weeks. So. Uh, very exciting times to be fair but yeah we've we've definitely lost a good one at CJ Okay lads look, we've, we've England this weekend um, Donald look I don't think I've spoken to a single person who gives Ireland much of a chance uh, to actually go and beat them on the basis of I suppose how good England were against France last weekend and also uh, the Ireland-Scotland game and the performance I guess and the mistakes and whatever after it um, it, it could be a long outing for, for Andy Farrell and for Ireland and it'll be interesting to, to gauge I suppose where we are in relation to England at the moment Look I think you'll know exactly where you are when the final whistle goes on, on Saturday afternoon um, I put it this way to you <clears throat> it was the England team that played against Scotland the first day played against Italy uh, played uh, well in the last 15 minutes against, against Wales then I'd say yeah I'd give Ireland a great chance of winning in Dublin if it's the England team that sort of rediscover their mojo and, and uh, their attacking intent, uh, that was evident in Cardiff, to be fair, but their discipline destroyed any hope they had of winning that game. Um, but that they were able to 
to, to sort of relaunch so impressively against France, then I'd be very worried. Like the bottom line, when you look at the last two games, psychologically, uh, uh, game management-wise, uh, we have the upper hand over Scotland. And I think Scotland knew that as well. And Scotland, with all their bravado, like we had beaten them four times recently going into that game, or five times, was it? No, we beaten that was six in a row. Likewise, England have beaten us four in a row. I think England, if we don't change the way we play, then England will beat us and beat us well. Mm. It, for me, it's a big test of the management now because uh, certainly three of those... Uh, England have won the last four games, right? One of those was, was a World Cup warm-up that was under Josh Mitzvah. So Andy Farrell has been at the helm for the last three matches and England have... Uh, like you go back to some of those games, they all they were almost better playing without the ball. They smashed us physically. They mm. defensively allowed us. They almost gave us the ball and said, okay, come running at us. They cut us off from the outside and they forced us to carry into them, which they just pummeled us and blew us away. Um, and even you, you go back to the, the Nations Cup game, um, you know, the scoreline I think was 18-9. But like for me, there was a, a far bigger gap between the sides than on the scoreline. Um, so if we don't look to play a different way, well, then the same outcome is inevitable. Uh, the concern I have of England, and they seem to have their tails up, and as I say, looking at a combination of the comments coming out of their camp, one Ellis Genge, they can't wait for the Six Nations to be over. So therefore you feel that there'll be kind of one massive effort from them. Likewise, you had Johnny May interviewed during the week, seemed to infer that they finally got to Eddie Jones and a bit like what's supposed to be happening with Ireland they, they took over a bit more control on the field and as a consequence of that their attacking game was far better like they did play well against Wales but mm. the 14 the fourteen penalties they gave away uh, at crucial times killed them not to mind the two bizarre refereeing calls um, now you have to question why did they fall away and, and I'm not taking from Wales because Wales finished that game brilliantly but if it's the England that have rediscovered that attacking intent and couple that with the power that they have up front and ally that with the fact that the Saracens guys who had no matches for two months at the start of the championship are now seven weeks further down and they have four games under their belt, well then you'd have to be concerned about the outcome of this game. Yeah, I think, Wes, it's, it's hard to make a case for, for optimism here um, this weekend. And England, have, as Donald said, Rightly said, I've had our number every time they've played us over the last um, couple of years, um, primarily because they just know exactly what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, and it's very easy to defend that. So unless we try something different this weekend, I can't see the results being any different. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, what we've seen so far is, you know, we'll, we'll certainly play into England's strengths. Their, their back three will be well able to deal with the kicking threat. You're not going to bash your way through them. Um, you know, it, it, there's two schools of thought with them that they're back on track after last week, and in which case you'd strongly fancy them. I, I, I would have a slight inkling that maybe France probably resonates more as a challenge for an English team than Ireland do. Um, and I think everything was on the line for them last week, and, and maybe they're not quite as as to the wall this week in terms of needing a result. You know, possibly we're, we're maybe clutching at straws there, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think there's no doubt England are favourites. Um, I'd be surprised to see us win it. 
Uh, yeah, me too. Johnny, last word to you. Any chance? <laughs> I, I think there is a chance, but I don't know if it's in our hands. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, We saw with the Scotland game that we were big in Scotland up until we stopped and thought, actually, do you know what? Scotland are bluffers and, and they fall away every time they, they get there. So, like, you know, you can think about it both ways. They got over France. Will that be a, a very hard thing to get up and down and back up with? You know, you see that emotional toll it takes on players and at international level, I think that's going to be very difficult. So, Hopefully that that stands to us. But again, that's not our play. That's England maybe not turning up a small bit and just emotionally it's taken over them. Um, you know, like Wes said, they got their win. Is it going to change what their outcome of the tournament is? They beat France. They they know now they're they're back there. Will they just saunter through the last one? You know, Donald said that they're getting they're struggling with, with English camp. That could mean they go out on one last hurrah or they just want to get home and they just want to get out of Dublin. So like I think it's very, very hard to call it. On, on the kind of black and white on paper, I think our game is under pressure. I think England will just, if we give them the same amount of possession that other teams have given them and that Ireland have kicked away to other teams, I think we'll, we'll be under a lot of pressure. So it needs to be a small bit of a change, a small bit more ball in hand. It'll take a Robbie Henshaw stepping up against the English again. You know, it'll take someone like Johnny Sexton to, to have another one of his great games. But I think we're under pressure. And every, all the signs are pointing to England winning again in Dublin, which is... Um, it's not a good sight, but you're hoping a couple of emotional things go our way, a couple of calls go our way, uh, hopefully another weekend where there's not too many cards in, in the, the Six Nations weekend, because last weekend was was a, a revelation to watch and a bit more excitement. So I think it's hopeful rather than tactically we're going to win it, but a, a couple of things definitely have to go our way on both sides, with England not bringing it and with us bringing a bit extra. Okay, that's about all the time we have on the podcast this week. We will be back to review it all next week. Hopefully a little bit more optimistic than perhaps our predictions. Don't forget, you can listen to live commentary on RT Radio 1 uh, this weekend with Michael and Donald. And you can follow the match on the tracker on the RT Sport website as well. Enjoy the last round of the Six Nations and we'll talk to you next week.